Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. The Bowery Boys episode 226, The Beauty Bosses of Fifth Avenue. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we'll be discussing a profession very crucial to the development of New York City over the decades, an area of New York that was transformed by this profession and two moguls who oversaw businesses that would change the lives of millions of women all over the world. Today's show actually has four characters. The profession is the American beauty industry. The area is New York's Fifth Avenue, particularly Fifth Avenue in Midtown. And the characters are none other than Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein, two immigrant women who built beauty empires and who managed to hold on to control of their companies in a world of men for decades. These are two extremely successful businesswomen in an era with few ways to break the glass ceiling into big business. So the solution, at least in the case of these two ladies, was to excel in an industry where women could rise to the top, an industry for women. This industry, the, the, the beauty business, went from being in the sidelines to really mainstream uh, in the first three decades of the 20th century. And Tom, I think this is going to be kind of a fun story to tell because not only are we taking a stroll up Fifth Avenue, mm -hmm. but a stroll back into time to an era when the standards of beauty were changing. So sit back and relax as we examine line by line Arden and Rubenstein in our compact history of the Fifth Avenue beauty business. All right, Greg. Well, before we situate the listener on what we're talking about here and how we're tackling this sort of glamorous topic, we do have to just mention that here we are in mid-April of 2017, back from our very first live recording at the Bell House in Brooklyn. It was a magnificent event. I think we had a lot of fun. The event was sold out at the Bell House. We want to thank 
NYC PodFest for inviting us to the show and the folks over at Bell House for hosting it. And of course, all of you who were able to show up. It was really fun to do the show in front of an audience and meet so many of you afterwards. So thank you to everybody who showed up. And that has definitely encouraged us to do Mm -hmm. more in the future. And we'll be letting you know um, as those plans arise. And something very surprising happened at that event, which (laughs) those who went to the show know what that is. But we'll save that little secret for you when we finally release that live show in a few weeks. Oh, the drama and intrigue. (laughs) Speaking of drama and intrigue, Greg, all right, let's pull back to today's makeover of Fifth Avenue Mm -hmm. here and, and situate the listener in terms of... I guess, let's start with first where we're talking about. Right. Well, we're talking about Fifth Avenue, Mm -hmm. mainly between 42nd Street and 57th Street, which for many decades has been New York City's main high-end retail district. Before this was a place where you bought your expensive handbags and (laughs) accessories, in New York City, at least, at the turn of the century, the place that you went was perhaps New York's first great shopping district, Ladies Mile, between Broadway and 6th Avenue and 14th and 23rd Street. This was an area of major department stores that catered to people of all classes, those of the carriage set along mm-hmm. Broadway, and more middle-class shoppers on 6th Avenue beneath the massive elevated train that ran by gigantic department stores. And, and there were also shops along 5th Avenue here, too, yes. that mm-hmm. were pretty upscale as well. But this was a phenomenon of the Gilded Age. And so slowly as we get into the 20th century here, those shops would move uptown. They would move north. After all, everyone was moving north at this time. You can see this migration very clearly by the early 1900s because you had these big box department stores like Macy's and Gimbel's that were arriving north of Ladies Mile, which was Herald Square. So so middle-class shops along 6th Avenue there, and what was happening over on 5th Avenue? Well, it was slightly different. There was some upscale shopping that was beginning to crawl up 5th Avenue, Uh but, but what made it starkly different, of course, was the homes of New York's wealthiest were along Fifth Avenue still, even at this time. And they didn't want the the traffic of shoppers walking by, probably. Absolutely. And the further up you got along Fifth Avenue, the houses just got bigger, more grandiose, more lavish. One example, this area that we will be talking about today had some of the biggest castles, if you will, in New York City. The houses of the Vanderbilts. For instance, there were three magnificent homes called the Triple Palace between 51st and 52nd. Sometimes Fifth Avenue during this period was called Vanderbilt Row just for their fancy homes here. So if this story takes place in the early 20th century, the first decades, this stretch of Fifth Avenue between 42nd and 57th starts out mostly lined with really opulent mansions. Right. So one of the stories that we'll be talking about today is the transition from a largely residential area to a largely retail area. So that's one narrative thread that will be coming through this. Another one of course, is the birth of a particular industry, the industry of beauty. Right. In beauty today, I feel like we kind of throw a lot of things into beauty, right? There might be hair, there might be makeup, there might be treatments and all kinds of things, facials. Um, But if we just pull back a little bit and look at the end of the 19th century, 
there was a big difference between what we now call cosmetics, which were like skin treatments and complexion treatments and lotions and things like that, and what we refer to today as makeup, which at the time people called paint. And these two groups were seen very differently by society. Generally speaking, could you say that cosmetics were more acceptable? Oh, they had been for like 2,000 years, right. <laughs> you know, skin, skin lotions and things went back as far as ancient Egypt 2,000 years ago when they developed a kind of cold cream, really, to treat the skin and to moisturize. They understood that moisturizing the skin was a good idea. One of the fascinating aspects of this story, I think, is that these cold creams, these anti-wrinkle creams mm -hmm. and things are all kind of considered medicinal, well, right. This is the same thing. I mean, there was a whole history in the 19th century, say, a whole like folk tradition of homemade remedies for the skin and treatments for the skin with recipes that were passed from generation to generation. And many of the people, most of the people who made these were women. It was like th these were secret family recipes, you know, that um, were passed along by generations and which could be whipped up in the kitchen with things uh, ingredients found in the herb garden or in the flower bed, along with certain items that could be picked up at the drugstore from a chemist. But were there things that you could actually buy in department stores by the time these sorts of creams? Sure, yeah. And by the late 19th century, there were patent medicines, say, um, you know, for which manufacturers had received some sort of patent. But many of these things were patently false, if you will, you know, because who knows what dangerous ingredients were in these things, um, like lead and mercury. They had a very bad reputation. And they made all kinds of claims about their healing power and what they could do for your skin. But many of these things could be purchased through mail order or through door-to-door -door salesmen. So really an aspect of the snake oil business. Right, but that would change a bit when the big department stores would start carrying some of these cosmetic treatments. And, it, and this was even acceptable for rich women to go into department stores and purchase. Well, they had an even uh, additional option available to them, which was to go into a place that was dedicated to applying these lotions and potions and ointments and oils to their faces for them so that they didn't have to touch it themselves. It seemed a little bit more scientific if a professional was putting this on. The owners of those establishments called their outlets salons and parlors, um, which were two, two terms that conjured up an upscale and reputable activity. You know, you might be going to get your skin treated or a manicure, but it was in a salon. Mm. So it couldn't really be that scandalous. <laughs> and that's obviously why we have beauty salons and beauty parlors today. That's just right. For hair and face. Right. And, but those terms um, really come from this moment where they were d being distinguished from the makeup industry. Because makeup was not being worn by respectable society women by this time. Right paint, quote-unquote, or makeup was being worn by two categories of people, either by stage performers or by prostitutes, who, mm. who really wanted to make an impression and make heads turn on the streets. They wanted to be able to be seen from a mile away. <laughs> Sometimes they were, or the back of the theater. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, we of course have to mention that we're only talking here about the cosmetic market really for white consumers at this time. You know, there were 
cosmetics and skin treatments that were also being developed in the same period in enterprises that were being built around the African-American market as well. And many of these were often homemade as well and sold door to door. And so there's a parallel history. And there were some amazing innovators at this time, including most famously, um, Madam C.J. Walker, who was phenomenally successful in the beginning of the 20th century in developing hair straighteners for the African-American market. And so it was around this time that she was up in Harlem mm-hmm. selling and manufacturing these things. But all of that would change mm-hmm. about 100 years ago, the 1910s, right, with the idea of the new, liberated, more independent woman. Thousands of women were moving into cities, taking jobs. They were spending money on themselves and notably were beginning to put on makeup. And it would be women who would capitalize on this industry. Mm-hmm. One of those powerful ladies was Helena Rubinstein, a tiny woman who became a major giant in New York business. Rubinstein was born on December 25th, 1872 in Krakow, Poland, to a Jewish family of some means. Her father sold kerosene in town. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Helena here, the oldest of seven siblings, pretty much spent her time taking care of them. She was quite spirited and fiercely independent, and it seems dreamt of a better life, for in 1896, at age 24, left Krakow by herself after having a bit of a falling out with her family, it seems. We're not quite sure what happened. Okay, so she might have been asked to leave. She may have been asked to leave, but she also was a very motivated person, too. Okay. and Because she went to a, a rather interesting place, Australia. She happened to have uncles that lived there. But what's amazing about her story is Australia is really the key to her claim to fame. And that's because Australia has a lot of sheep. (laughs) I'm sorry. I was thinking sun, um, adorable accents, but sheep? Sheep are key to the story, Tom. Rubenstein was renowned for her glowing skin and came up with the idea of manufacturing and marketing a beauty cream. Her secret was Mm -hmm. actually a product that was found everywhere. Lanolin. Lanolin. I've seen the word. And so do you know what lanolin is? Lanolin is the secretions made from the glands of sheep. Oh, that took an odd turn. (laughs) I've never said the words secretion from the glands of sheep before on this show. But lanolin keeps the wool protected, especially in this harsh Australian sun. Okay, so she's in Australia, and she's hanging out on a farm, mm-hmm. and she's, she's got limitless access to, <laughs> to lanolin, apparently. Right. So she decides that she wants to make a living by making beauty cream. The interesting thing, though, is she markets it in a very peculiar way, saying that it's an ancient secret from the old country. As you said, that these, there are these passed-down recipes mm-hmm. for face creams. And so she marketed this in a similar fashion. But in truth, these beauty creams were actually lanolin mixed with other properties, mostly perfumes, because lanolin doesn't smell all that great. Oh, I think it smells bad. (laughs) Well, she didn't stay on the farm for long. In, In 1903, she opened a salon in Melbourne, selling a product called Velez Skin Food. 
1904, she advertised it thusly, quote, It is compounded from rare herbs which only grow in the Carpathian Mountains and is of exceptional value to those who are disfigured with freckles, sunburn, wrinkles, eczema, blackheads, and skin blemishes of any kind. Mm. Sounds like a miracle elixir. Was Helena making this herself? Yeah, she was making it there in her own shop. And selling it to the general public. Yes, the the women of Melbourne loved it. There was, you know, a lot of wealth coming in in recent decades here due to the Victorian gold rush of the 1860s. And the Commonwealth of Australia had just been formed in 1901, just three years earlier. So she was in the right place, aiming a product at aspirational Australian women. So she opened another salon in Sydney in 1906. And her empire over the years just kept getting larger and larger, selling different kinds of creams. She naturally expanded to London in 1908 and in Paris in 1909. And these places that are opening, they're, they're, were they like stores where you would have over-the-counter access to these? Or were they salons? Or was, what were it they? It was both. It was really a salon that wealthy women could go to, have it applied, and all these other sort of beauty treatments could be done as well. But you could buy it and take it home, of course. But for those who weren't near a store, she also started a mail-order business. You know, although when she would come to New York, it would take on the air of a high-end salon, she always wanted to create a product that was used by women who weren't as wealthy, Right, that this was a product that could be that you could find in a magazine and just order it and have it sent to you via mail. Okay, so by the first decade of the 1900s, it sounds like Helena here is rolling and rolling and lanolin. She's she's (laughs) got a maid, lanolin, and lots of wealth. She she was always known throughout her whole life for lavish art and jewelry, and she carried herself uh, looking like a queen. So when when does she end her R story over here? Yeah. When does she come over? Coincidentally, in mm-hmm. 1914, you know, it's around the start of World War One, and her London and Paris businesses would suffer during this period, of course. But she came here to initially start a franchise business, and she would go all over the country by train. Uh, I can just imagine small diminutive <laughs> Helena Rubinstein on the train going from city to city, visiting specialty stores and going to counters and making deals with department stores across the country. Her brands were so valued that she would make deals with store owners to sell her products here if the people who worked behind the counter came to New York for personal training. Wow, so it's almost like she's starting a beauty school here in New York. She really does innovate so many different components of the beauty industry at this very moment. Mm -hmm. So, of course, she does end up finally setting up a shop in New York at 15 East 49th Street. She would move around a couple times. 15 East 49th, but weren't we talking or planning to talk about Fifth Avenue? Why wasn't she on Fifth Avenue? Well, this is off Fifth Avenue, so it's sort of generally considered the Fifth Avenue retail, but it's curious because it wasn't directly on Fifth Avenue because she couldn't get retail space because she was Jewish. And this would be a prejudice that she would encounter for much of her life here in New York. But she was, however, one block away from St. Patrick's Cathedral, two blocks from those Vanderbilt mansions, and, of course, just Mm -hmm. a few blocks away from a competing salon. (laughs) I believe that you're talking about the salon that was owned by one Florence Nightingale Graham. Wait, 
Florence Nightingale, the nurse? <laughs> well, she was named by her mother um, mm. after Florence Nightingale, the nurse. But no, Florence Nightingale Graham was born at, uh, on a farm in Ontario, in Canada, and her parents were of Scotch-English origin. She was born in 1881. She tried out her luck in Toronto, wanted some like big city glamour, wasn't getting it in Toronto. So Florence moved emigrated to New York City in 1907 to find better career opportunities. And she landed a job with a beautician named Eleanor Adier. Florence worked as a cashier, but she also learned about massage and about creating face creams. And most importantly, she was inspired to set up her own shop. So in 1910, three years after arriving in New York, she left her job and went into business with a friend of hers named Elizabeth Hubbard. They opened up their shop in a brownstone at 509 Fifth Avenue, which was between 42nd and 43rd Street on the east side of the street. So so we have this new business here Mm -hmm. with Florence and Elizabeth Hubbard. Right. You're confused, understandably, Mm -hmm. but hold on. While their partnership didn't last very long, Florence continued the business on her own and decided, you know, that the whole thing, the whole business needed a little bit of a a makeover, Greg. So she'd start with the name. So she played around first with the thought of calling it Florence Nightingale, which Hmm. seems kind of, you know... Cute. Yeah, sure. Confusing the brand a little bit, though. (laughs) Right. It wasn't first aid remedies or anything. (laughs) But what happened next is the stuff of beauty legends. We're not exactly sure which one to believe. I read several accounts Mm -hmm. of this, you know, but who knows? It's all been sort of made over at various (laughs) points in history. But my favorite version, which I uh, which I saw in this great documentary called The Powder and the Glory, which is about these two women. Their version has it that the sign outside on the street on Fifth Avenue already said Elizabeth Hubbard, right? Since it was already spelled out, she decided to just keep the Elizabeth up there, right, in letters, take down the Hubbard and replace it with another name. Now, she was also fond of the name Arden. So she replaced Hubbard with Arden and wound up calling her shop Elizabeth Arden. So essentially, her name is as made up as the faces that would later wear Elizabeth Arden. Did she actually change her name, her legal name, to Elizabeth Arden? Well, that's, yeah, that's kind of a confusing aspect of this, because she did change her name to Mrs. Elizabeth Graham. So she kept her last name, but then took on Elizabeth to make it a little bit clearer, Mm -hmm. to clear things up a little bit. But then she would also go by Miss Arden. So she really went by three different names, Florence Nightingale Graham, Elizabeth Graham, and Elizabeth Arden. It's very confusing. I would just call her ma'am. So what did she sell at the store here, at her first salon here on Fifth Avenue? Right. Well, after a few years of operating the salon, right, it opened in 1910. Well, in 1914, just a few years after she opened the salon, she introduced some of her own beauty lotions and potions. There was a Venetian cream that she introduced, a cream amaretta, which was a light and fluffy facial cream, a tonic, a a facial astringent called Ardena Skin Tonic. And notably, all of her products would come packaged in pink. And in 1915, Arden moved her shop up Fifth Avenue nearer to Helena's, to a larger space, and she started that year mass-producing some of these items to be sold in department stores around the country. 
and that same year got married to a man named Thomas Jenkins Lewis, who who actually worked for her. He was in charge of her wholesale uh, product line. Well, Helena also had a husband who worked for her as well. So th- almost throughout their whole lives, the men in their lives reported to them. So here we are in 1915 with two powerful women operating in a business world of men. And they were, they were leaders at this moment in the same industry and very much aware of each other's moves. What they may not have realized is that as they were trying to make their own businesses successful, they were also setting the stage for a great transformation that was happening here on Fifth Avenue, but of course in the lives of women across the country. And as they were fighting for prominence in the market, they were also fighting with each other, and they were just a few blocks away from each other. The competition was officially on, and it would stay on, for nearly 50 years. We'll get to their face-off after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. The length some women will go to just to look beautiful. Her long, long dress decreed by Paris. Her long, long lashes decreed by Helena Rubinstein. Long lash, mascara and lash builder in one. Makes lashes longer, measurably longer and thicker. Waterproof too. Long lash, the lengths to which Helena Rubinstein will go just to make women beautiful. And who but Helena Rubinstein could create the only home hair coloring in 22 shades so you're sure of one that's perfect for you. Tintillate, permanent hair coloring you just shampoo in. Mix is directed for color that's always even. Only Helena Rubinstein could make home hair coloring so easy, so natural looking, so beautiful. Tintillate by Helena Rubinstein. Only Helena Rubinstein. Well, <laughs> well, actually, not only Helena Rubinstein, because Elizabeth Arden, nay Florence Nightingale, was also doing some pretty glamorous things here. Right, so that was a very sparkly, very uh, glittery commercial from the 1960s. We're going to head back in time, though, because we left them in the 19-teens. Right, having just opened up their salons a few blocks from each other on Fifth Avenue. And we should also say, just from the outset, that these salons and the the images that these two women projected 
were very different from each other. While one of them was edgy and artistic and even exotic, the other was trying to be quintessentially feminine American Hamptons chic. So I think the best way to illustrate these two styles of these two women and the women that helped make Fifth Avenue what it is today, I thought it would make sense to visit their salons. I'm going to choose a moment in time uh, from Rubenstein's career. That's a good idea. I think we can even use a little relaxation after our big live event. Oh, uh, yes. You know, we need to just check ourselves in. (laughs) Well, if we can get an appointment, Mm -hmm. um, our first destination is actually going to be the year 1925. Now, Rubenstein had had a couple locations already around the Fifth Avenue area, but not exactly on Fifth Avenue. Well, it was in 1925 that she moved to 57th Street and Fifth Avenue. And what makes this very significant, Tom, is that she moved into a former mansion, a mansion owned by Collis Huntington, the railroad magnate. By the 1920s here, a lot of these old mansions are being torn down, but a great many more are simply being converted into retail. Mm. And to this day, you can walk up and down Fifth Avenue, and the buildings will have this kind of hybrid feeling of a retail shop, but also like you're walking into someone's gracious manner. Well, by all means, take us to Miss Rubenstein's uh, gracious home. This was not her home, though. Well, actually, she did have an apartment right above it. She was such a workaholic that she often never went home. She would just stay there for the whole night and then wake up in the morning and start commanding her large number of employees. She did, of course, have an actual home in the city. She would eventually live on Central Park West. But her husband was kind of running around on her for many years in Greenwich Village with all different types, and she eventually divorced him. So she really threw herself into her work and then, of course, sometimes actually just lived atop her own salon here. Okay, so take us inside. One thing to keep in mind here is that, you know, we think cosmetics today. You might think of Sephora Mm. or a department store counter. But that's not how these salons were, neither Arden's or Rubenstein's. They were something very sanitary and almost like a medical facility Mm. mixed with like an immaculate showroom. You know, this did make sense for these creams, these skin foods, Uh but it was really more like a spa. These were more destinations, you know, you you didn't just pop in and out of just to pick up something while you were window shopping. You usually spent a couple hours, if not longer, in the presence of Rubenstein and her staff. Okay, so it's a destination, and once you got there, what kind of a treatment would you get? Well, all your beauty needs, all of the basic creams that she would sell, of course, but so much more. You could go there for a massage. At one point, she even had a, gym, a gymnasium, yeah. some, some yoga. There was even some fencing. So it was the There was whole... a fitness craze in the 1920s. <laughs> yeah. There was. So it was a, kind of a whole body experience. It wasn't just about your face. It was really about the healthy appearance. All right. Well, this sounds very spa-like. Oh, yeah, doesn't Getting it? Mm-hmm. treatments and such. Um, would people get makeovers? Oh, absolutely. And the best part of this, of so spending a whole day there with getting all different kinds of things done to your body to look gorgeous, you were doing it in this space that was itself quite beautiful. 
Helena had her extensive collection of artwork on the walls here, so it felt very exotic. It felt very continental. Mm-hmm. And so it was like you're walking through her own home. And the best feature of this particular salon was the grand staircase because she wanted people to feel like they were at home, like this was part of their lifestyle. So they would, after a day of makeovers, would walk down the staircase and out into the street. So you were buying into an entire lifestyle by going to her salon and one that actually brought you closer to world-class art. Art and movie stars, Tom. For it was around the late 1910s that actual makeup, paint, as Mm -hmm. they used to call it, begins to creep into these shops. And that is because of also the popularization of the close-up in movies and the fact that audiences could suddenly see in great detail the most famous actresses in the country wearing makeup. One of the most famous actresses of the silent screen era was Theda Bara, and she was a good friend of Rubenstein and even had a line of makeup named after her. Rubenstein would make her up for her films as well. So, wow. so there was already celebrity endorsement here. You might, see, you might see one of these movie stars while you were inside the salon. But, but meanwhile, off in L.A., there was also a very famous makeup designer to the stars named Max Factor, who also did quite a bit to popularize the use of makeup as well. He became a household name and launched his own line of cosmetics. So one more thing before we visit Arden over in her salon. As you're walking out of Rubenstein's salon and over to Arden's, the neighborhood is changing very significantly at this time. Rapid growth here on Fifth Avenue in the 1920s. You're seeing houses being torn down. You're seeing retail opportunities suddenly popping up where there weren't any before. The whole thing is changing right during this decade. It's going from a place where you'd wear your Easter bonnets, walking in front of St. Patrick's Cathedral, and modeling your high society clothing, to actually going here to buy that high society clothing and all the accessories that come with it. So if we're heading down Fifth Avenue toward Elizabeth Arden's, what you'll notice when you get to Arden's salon um, is her trademark red door outside, Elizabeth Arden's red door salon. Over the decades, these red door salons would pop up all over the country, in, in big resorts around the country, and around the world. But let's, let's head down to Arden's salon, and one thing that you'll notice when you head inside... Opening the red door you'll see a lot of pink. And that is because Arden believed that pink was the most flattering color for women and it heightened their femininity and it you know, reflected a flattering glow. And she lived that philosophy herself. She stuck mostly to wearing pinks in her own wardrobe and usually exhibited you know, a pretty simple and elegant look complete with diamonds and, and pearls and earrings and the whole bit. But inside her stores and inside her apartments and inside her residences, including the castle that she owned outside of Dublin, they were all, (laughs) they would all be done up in pink. So who were the clients at Arden's and how are they different from Rubenstein's? Well, where Rubenstein was, I think, working to attract kind of an edgier crowd, right? People who were interested in modern art and cutting edge. Arden was going after more of a high society crowd, a more sophisticated, um, but yes, more Hamptons and country club chic. And she would cultivate 
relationships with the rich and powerful in high society. For example, in Paris, she would actually hire a countess uh, to handle her PR. And she counted celebrities like the Duchess of Windsor in Paris among her, among her clients. And notably in 1930, she moved her operation up to 691 Fifth Avenue, which was called the Aeolian Building at 54th and Fifth Avenue. It's a, it's a lovely neoclassical building with French Renaissance trimmings. It's still there. So she moved here in 1930, took up 11 of the 12 floors. And this was really her main Red Door Salon. This was the headquarters of Elizabeth Arden's salons. Until really just recently. Mm -hmm. Until recently? Yes. Okay, well, we'll get back to that. Uh, (laughs) So what were you doing inside this spa? Well, she built it into a luxurious experience. I'm going to quote, if I may, from her obituary, uh, which ran in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. Quote, By and large, Elizabeth Arden salons catered to women 40 years of age and older. For them, a basic day at her New York salon included massage, shampoo, set and restyling, manicure, pedicure, facial, makeup, and lunch. All this, done in a setting of 18th century French and Regency decor, cost about $50 without tips. That sounds like a great deal. (laughs) <laughs> Except that in 1930, $50 was about $700 today. Oh, well, it's, you know, comparable probably to things you can find on Fifth Avenue today. <laughs> well, in 1933, actually, she opened up something even more extravagant called the Maine Chance Farm in Mount Vernon, Maine, where it was the first sort of beauty retreat in the country. You could check yourself in for a week's worth of restorative treatments at this resort All for the low price of $500, which translates into about $9,000 today. So in essence, neither of these two salons, neither of these two women were running operations that were necessarily affordable. Right. And that was 1933 in the depths of the Depression, which kind of makes you wonder, you know, were they only creating experiences for rich women. Rubenstein herself said that during moments of financial crises, that sometimes she would actually raise the price of her items and people would buy more of them because they were aiming at a sort of a higher, wealthier strata here. Well, that and even middle class customers would save money to pamper themselves even through difficult times. So the cosmetics industry surprisingly, saw growth during the Great Depression. Well, even back in the 1920s, one thing that they both really used to their advantage was advertising in magazines, which were, of course, uh, a huge booming business at this period. Including lots of women's magazines that had millions of readers, including Good Housekeeping, Ladies Home Journal, McCall's, and others. And this was really the development of a kind of partnership, cooperation, collusion, call it what you will, between these magazines and ad agencies and beauty companies, really, to create editorial and placement and advertorial that all sort of work together to promote the use of makeup by middle-class Americans. And that is an instinct that is still going strong in American publishing today. In fact, some of these ad agencies developed entire concepts. You know, in one of the books that I was reading uh, to prepare for this show called Hope in a Jar, The Making of America's Beauty Culture by Kathy Pice, 
She explains how it was actually an advertising woman named Helen Lansdowne Rezor who created an ad campaign in 1916 for J. Walter Thompson's ad agency for Pond's Cold Cream, Mm -hmm. which was one of their accounts. She developed the idea that that two products, cold cream and a vanishing cream, should be used together as a system that you'd cleanse in the morning with the cold cream and then moisturize with the vanishing cream at night. And it was really through the press and the popular press and magazines and these advertisements that they pushed this idea of a cosmetic system. So for the first time, middle-class women didn't need to go to a salon to get an expensive treatment. They could just go to a department store and buy two products that they could take home and give themselves the same treatment that they could only find in a big salon in a major city. And bathroom cabinets have never been the same since. (laughs) Right. That was the mainstreaming of makeup. And that was, you know, that was really early. That was 1916. but, but But it worked really well. And Pond saw their sales quadruple because of that ad campaign. So more of those things were developed, more systems were developed into the 1920s and just huge ad campaigns purchased by Rubenstein and by Arden uh, to promote every new product that they had, be it a lotion or a face powder or a scent. They all got pushed in the press. You know, something very interesting happens to Rubenstein in 1928. She sells the American wing of her business to the Lehman Brothers. When's the last time you heard the name Lehman Brothers? <laughs> she sold to... Were they actual brothers at the time? They were indeed brothers. Wait, they bought her business in 1928? 1928. Not, mm. Maybe not the great time to be jumping into a, you know, a new revenue stream. Well, a great time f- to be selling a cosmetics company. <laughs> yeah, well, so sure enough, the so the stock market crash happens in 1929, and Lehman Brothers is not really able to like do much with this new property. And so slowly, Helena Rubinstein actually buys her company back at a profit of $6 million. And well, this is just money that she can use to buy more opulent baubles and decor and art for her houses. Interestingly, by the way, speaking of places that she lived, in 1941, she wanted to buy a penthouse at 625 Park Avenue. But even in 1941, she was not allowed to purchase one because she was a Jewish woman. Well, that's depressing. So where did she move? Well, she no, she ended up moving into the building. It's like she, well, it's like she gets the last laugh again because she ends up buying the whole building. And she lived there for the rest of her life. Wow. But, you know, just as Rubenstein had her elaborate modern art collection, Elizabeth Arden had a collection of her own, for she was a collector of racehorses. Racehorses? Were these in her salon as well? (laughs) No, they were kept out of the city at various farms, although she did keep them meticulously groomed. She called them her babies. Okay. Um, And she did give them regular applications of Elizabeth Arden creams. (laughs) What? She put makeup on them? (laughs) Lovely long lashes. You can't put lipstick on a horse. (laughs) I love that this story began with sheep, and now we're ending with horses. (laughs) No, but seriously, one of her horses, Jet Pilot, won the Kentucky Derby in 1947. 
So success on the racetrack, but by the 1940s, like the late 1940s, after the war, things aren't going so well with her company, are they? Well, really, both of the companies take quite a hit, which is ironic because it's also the same period that that makeup truly goes mainstream America. However, post-war, both Rubenstein and Elizabeth Arden are starting to look you know, like yesterday's brands. Yeah, kind They're, of old-fashioned, right? And passe, like something that your mother, or even worse, your grandmother could have worn. There were new players in town, most notably Charles Revson, um, whose Revlon company was actually using sexier forms of advertising. And I mean that literally, like sexier ads in magazines, but also using new mediums like television. He was sponsoring game shows. He was introducing products on the air, from lipstick to hairspray, in demonstrations that no longer took place in department stores, but were actually broadcast into millions of American living rooms. And now you could buy these products in drug stores, and even grocery stores sometimes. Well, as they went mainstream, the prices dropped. Like for Revlon, that was certainly cheaper. And there were other brands in the 1950s, you know, Maybelline, CoverGirl. Like these were what younger consumers were were wearing. They weren't going to go put on some Elizabeth Arden. Not to mention that there's a new player in town by this time named Estee Lauder. Right. Josephine Esther Menser, who had been born in 1908, but by the post-war period was building a formidable cosmetics empire. And Lauder is a fascinating figure. She's a New York City lady. She was born in Corona, Queens. But let's make this another podcast because I think we need to focus, come back to our original two characters here Mm -hmm. and kind of give one final look at what this actual rivalry, what it actually meant. Because here they were competing their entire adult lives just blocks apart from each other. The two big brand names in cosmetics and salons for decades. But if legend is to be believed, these two women never actually met each other, or at least never had a significant business meeting. Because it seems very likely that in the decades that they worked in the same city and so close to each other and attended similar events, you know, that they might encounter each other, they might have a run-in with each other. But from all accounts that we've read, they never sat down and had a meeting together or certainly discussed ways in which they could work together, which in some ways seems kind of like a lost opportunity. Mm-hmm. Helena Rubinstein died on April 1st, 1965, and she's buried in Mount Olivet Cemetery in Queens. Elizabeth Arden fell ill on Monday, October 17th, 1966, in her 10-room apartment and died the next day in Lenox Hill Hospital on the Upper East Side. She was 87, although her New York Times obituary had her age through the company at 81. She was undeniably ageless, a circumstance that she accentuated by concealing her birth date. Whatever it may have been, Mrs. Graham, in her 60s and 70s, looked 20 years younger, even on close inspection of her face. Moreover, her hair never grayed publicly, but remained mostly a beige blonde. And Elizabeth Arden is buried in Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. Now, Greg, what became of the Helena Rubinstein brand? In 1973, it was sold to Colgate Palmolive. So, you know, now we're in a... 
completely different mm. mindset here because now she's with other industrial products. We're talking toothpaste and dishwashing liquid, among other household products. Today, the Helena Rubinstein brand is back in the fold of cosmetics. The brand is owned by L'Oreal, the French makeup company. Well, Elizabeth Arden's Red Door Salon stayed put at their Fifth Avenue location until they moved just two blocks south to 663 Fifth Avenue in 2012. Wow, that's recent. What about Elizabeth Arden's company? Well, the company changed hands a number of times after her death and was owned, you know, over the years by Eli Lilly, by Fabergé, by Unilever, which purchased it in 2003. And then finally, in late last year, late 2016, Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Arden was purchased by Revlon. For more information on these two women and the industry they built, please check out the book War Paint by Lindy Woodhead, on which the Broadway musical is based. Check out our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have some images of the early days of New York salons on Fifth Avenue. You can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. And of course, we'd like to say a big thanks to our patrons who have joined with their support at Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash BoweryBoys, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can join with your support, which really helps Greg and me as we strive to put out a new show Mm -hmm. every two weeks. We can only do this because of your support, so thank you very, very much. And on that, we hope that you've enjoyed our compact history of these two... um, well, I don't think that was very compact at all. It was a bit of a powder puff. <laughs> <laughs> well, regardless, we hope that you've enjoyed our history of Arden Rubinstein and the makeup bosses of Fifth Avenue. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 